We're going to spend a few moments uh, thinking together through the one passage in the Gospels that actually speak of the day of Jesus' birth. If you read, for example, through Matthew's Gospel, there's nothing, as far as I can see it, about the actual day. There's things before and just after. But Luke's Gospel, Dr. Luke, he writes the account which gives us things of the very day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help to hear what you're saying to us through this part of your word. Uh, please help me to speak clearly, to not get in the way. Uh, please help us to have the courage to think afresh or perhaps for the first time as we listen to this part of your word. Please, by your spirit, open our eyes and transform us. Amen. Uh, good news. Those of us who are ancient will remember a somewhat cynical song of it's good news week, someone's dropped a bomb somewhere contaminating the atmosphere, have you heard? That? But good news is a great thing when you get to hear it. I would like you to stop and think, what is the best piece of good news you've ever heard? You may need to go back a few years. What is the best piece of good news you have ever heard? Now, just so you don't cheat and think, oh, no, he's going to say it's the Jesus stuff. Just have a thought about something else apart from that, perhaps. The best bit of good news that you've ever heard, if that's too big, just go for a bit of good news. And what is it about it that makes it good? Why was it so thrilling? Why was it so moving? Why was it so exciting? Um, Alison uh, was reading to me something from the ABC um, News the other day. Homeless Bendigo family moved from a tent to a new house for Christmas. Emma and Dallas had feared that they and their nine children would be spending Christmas Day and the rest of summer living in a tent in the bush outside Bendigo. But this week they received the best news they could have hoped for. A house that they can call home for the next 18 months. After months of asking housing and homeless services for support, they had secured transitional housing. And Emma says, I've been able to cook meals. She gives a bit of a list of them. The kids can now be enrolled in school because there's some peculiar thing that if you don't have a fixed address, your children will be punished. That um, seems unwise. But it was a lovely story, wasn't it, of, of sort of what should have probably happened a lot earlier because they were homeless for quite a few months, that they've got this really good news, the best news they could have hoped for. But I, I, I thought it was a lovely story. But I'm not sure if it is the best news they could have hoped for. I mean, I'm not even that imaginative. I could have thought of best news, better news, like not a house for 18 months, but a house for keeps. That might have been better. A uh, house for free. A palace in Bendigo. <laughs> but with, with good news, normally what happens is when you get good news, something ends. There was a problem, there was a challenge, there was a danger, there was a threat. And the news comes and says, that's over. You're released from that fear or you're released from that uncertainty. And uh, you, your feeling is either self-congratulatory, how wonderful I was to organise that, or perhaps to have a deep sense of debt to someone, to some medical team, to some friend, uh, to some who knows who. But they're the sorts of things that go when we get really good news. And Christmas is supposed to be a, a good news week. And you will have heard those words in that reading. 
And uh, just let me draw your attention to this. The, the angel comes, um, would be happy to spend time arguing on why it's a sensible thing to believe in angels, but just for the moment, we'll just let that go. We don't, I've been, there was a friend, and I won't tell you who it is because you might hurt them, who said they didn't want to be getting out of the building till two o'clock. So, but I'm not going to take that challenge. But so in order to shorten it, the shepherds are out there in the fields. The baby has been born, very unimpressive. I mean, it's a real nobody's birth. Um, and then our attention is turned to another group of nobodies, kind of almost worse than nobodies. Because the way it worked in those days in Israel, of so low regard were shepherds held that they really couldn't bear witness in court. If your only witnesses were shepherds, you were in trouble because they were considered on the whole to be dodgy. You may like to think of modern professions like that, like Anglican ministers or other people like that. But uh, that was the situation. But the angels come to them. They don't go to the temple. They don't go to some palace. They go to these nobodies and speak to them. They're terrified. And the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I want you to notice these six words. Good news, great joy, all people. Right? That's what we've got. Good news, great joy, all people. Let's see if we've got some of these pictures here. Moving on. Now, the problem with joy, it very rarely is for all people. Now, joy, as you know, is much deeper than happiness. It's kind of related to happiness. But it's a deeper, stronger, more permanent thing. It's deep in the heart and the mind and the soul. There'd be many people in Australia who've never experienced joy. Oh, they've had happiness. You can pretty much buy happiness. But joy is a much deeper, solid thing. This is good news of great joy, mega joy. We're told that the shepherds were mega phobic. They were me mega afraid. Now, the answer is no, mega joy is the logical, rational, emotional response to this. Good news, great joy for all people. Now, many of you will know this great picture. We're not quite sure who it is. It doesn't really matter. But this is at the end of World War II, so he's very happy. But, of course, it's because there are another group of people who are very, very unhappy. That's the uh, official group on the American battleship from Japan reluctantly signing the complete surrender. So the happiness of one group is drawn out, sadly, out of the pain and the horror and the tragedy of another. That's how joy normally works. Now, to go to something completely trivial, when Australia won that cricket match a little while ago, I remember thinking, there'd be an awful lot more people happy tonight if India had won the World Cup, wouldn't there? Right? But our pokey little nation, you know, with seven supporters in the, in the, and there were 100,000 Indian folk there waiting for their chance to win the World Cup. But very often, joy, if you stop, is, is built on the pain and the defeat of others. The angels come and say, good news, great joy, all people. No one has to be crushed and defeated for this joy to be experienced. This is quite distinctive that the angels bring the message of. Good news, great joy, all people. Now, why is it? Why is it that all people can be joyful? See, because what you, when you read Luke chapter 1, and it pops up even in these verses, Christ the Lord, 
the Christ was the long-awaited king that, that Israel was waiting for, who was going to crush the evildoers and, and set the poor uh, in, in the better position, lift them up. Now that's a somebody wins, somebody loses. It may at last be the right people losing, but this is different. What he says is there'll be universal joy. Why? Verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour. Now, it's an interesting way to speak, isn't it? Because normally if you say, you know, for us, a child has been born, it would be someone who's in your family, perhaps. You may be the mum and the dad, you might be the grandparents, you might be someone. It, that, not every baby that's born can be said it's done for you. But apparently, the angel thinks, these disreputable shepherds, this baby born was for them. A saviour, a rescuer. Now, when it comes to good news, it's not uncommon for it to involve a saviour. It's very common for us to think we don't need saviours. We can save ourselves, thank you. If we get ourselves into trouble, we can get ourselves out of it. But actually, that's not true. Many of us could do with being rescued. I have a friend called Reuben, and I'm not the most observant person, but I noted that his firstborn son was also called Reuben, and then I discovered that his father was called Reuben, so I said, are you guys Jewish? Reuben Rose. I thought it was probably could have been Rosenberg. That sort of thing happened. He said, no, the reason why the firstborn son is always called Reuben is because many generations ago, our family nearly lost the farm, literally, and a Jewish man called Reuben rescued them, gave them the finance they needed at very reasonable cost. So to honour that great saviour, their firstborn son is called Reuben. Some of us can be dealing with sickness, either in ourselves or in someone who we care about. And if a new drug comes up that actually works, you could well think of those who've been working so hard in the laboratory as saviours, because they have done the work that has saved. If a person is an alcoholic or a drug addict, NA or some other group like that, they might think that group saved my life. There are people in this building who, are, who could bear testimony to that. So what uh, the angels say is that there's a saviour who's been born who will bring some blessing that won't be because some lose and some win. It'll be different to that. Now, if you've been saved, and in Australia when I ask that question, in, often in, in our Simply Christianity course, people go and tell stories of water. That's where Australians have our near-death experiences very often, beaches, rivers, etc. What is it that Jesus saves us from? Well, let me read you again what the angel says in Matthew chapter 1. They had a different view of names, uh, the, uh, the Jewish sort of community. The, the name meant something about who you were. So very often as you read through the Old Testament, someone will have a deep experience that transforms them and God gives them a new name to mark that. But here's the description to Joseph about Jesus. Your wife will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their... I don't want to say that word in polite company and this is a happy time. You call him Jesus, which means saviour. It's the same as the name Joshua. So Jesus is to be called, he is to be called Jesus because he's going to do the Jesus thing. He's going to save. What's he going to save his people from? Sin. 
It's a terrible thing, sin, isn't it? Because we're addicted to it, we hate hearing about it. And because it plays such a large part in our mind and our thinking and our lives, we get very defensive if the subject comes up. And we're somewhat annoyed that God insists on talking about sin. We don't mind him talking about the sins of others, whether it's other groups or others, to talk about that. But our own sin, um, do I seriously need to be saved? That's an insult. I mean, you all look like such nice people. There's one or two exceptions I can see, but most of you look, you know, thoroughly decent, nice people, all dolled up. But if God sends a saviour, I presume it's because he's no fool and he thinks we need a saviour. From what? Well, not just from the banks or other things like that, but what he says here is sin. Uh, and I, I don't want to spend too much on this because it, it's a subject that some people don't like talking about. As I say, we don't mind doing it and being governed and controlled by it, but we don't want to stop and think about it. According to Jesus, by far, my biggest problem and your biggest problem is sin. Um, you may have any number of virulent cancers at work in your body at the moment. That is not your biggest problem. By far, the biggest problem is sin. It destroys us, it corrupts our families, it destroys nations, it destroys trust, it's addictive. And according to Jesus, it is the biggest need that we have to have dealt with. You see that, don't you, in in that very famous story when Jesus is confronted by a man who's a quadriplegic, can't walk, he's been lowered into the room where Jesus is tied to ropes. And Jesus somewhat, well, it's odd, It's obvious what the man needs and Jesus is the only person who can fix him and yet Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. As if that was the best and most important news he was ever going to hear. And I reckon if you were part of the friends of of that man who'd gone to all that trouble to get him to Jesus, you'd have been pretty unhappy with that. That's very nice, Jesus, all that spiritual talk, but we've got a real person in real need here for crying out loud. And as I've shared with you, my big sister insisted that I speak from that passage at her funeral because she lived most of her life as a quadriplegic and she instructed me what to say, that I was to tell people that, of course, quadriplegia is a dreadful thing, but having your sins unforgiven is far worse. And that if you had a choice with someone like my sister to have her healed and walk and dance and sing and look after her children, etc., which you couldn't do, or have her sins forgiven. If you see things the way Jesus sees them, you say, leave her in the wheelchair. Much more important to have your sins forgiven. Jesus does heal the man, but only to show that he has this sort of authority to deal with sins. Well, the Anglican Church has got this hang-up about it, hasn't it? You know, we, most of our services start with something like what we did today, isn't it? Where we hear what Jesus says, what's the first and great commandment? Not love your neighbour. Um, you can be quite loving to your neighbour and be an absolutely vile and evil human being. Because according to Jesus, my first obligation and your first obligation is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. I want to suggest to you, you cannot be loving God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and not be aware of it. You can't love anything, can you, with all your heart, mind, soul and strength? And not be aware of it. So if you're thinking, I wonder if I, you know, I don't think much about God. Um, 
you've broken the first and great commandment, according to Jesus. And if you say that's not very important, surely it only matters about how you treat your neighbour, you are showing what a first and great order sinner you are, that you think you know more than the Son of God, that you can work out what's good and what's evil. No, 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 no. God makes the call on that. See, most Australians, even some Australians who call themselves atheists, and we're not atheists on the whole at all. We're what's, uh, to use a technical term, we are ignortheists. Not sure if that's a real word or not. Uh, we're ignortheists, that is, theism, theist being the word for God. We are, as, as a race, people who choose to ignore God. Well, it's not that we don't believe he's there. Right? We just ignore him. We don't listen to him. We're not thankful to him. We're not mindful of him, of what to do with our life, our time, our gifts, our money, everything. We're ignortheists. But we like to think we're quite nice people. But I want to suggest to you, if you are not loving God, if that's not the great centre and goal and aim of your life, according to Jesus Christ, you are a first and great order sinner. He says it's the first and great commandment. We do need saving because many of us have lived decades of our life with our whole life being one great act of careless defiance against the God who's given us all things. Rate this marriage. Here's a couple of people who've married. The husband always does the shopping for the week. He usually cooks the meals. He always washes up. He always takes out the garbage. If he's away and it's a key anniversary, he sends flowers. If he's away on a birthday, he sends flowers. He pays the bills. He works hard. He never shouts at his wife. He never shouts at the children. He is constantly pretty kind. He just hasn't spoken to his wife in three years. He hasn't listened to her when she's spoken in three years. How's that for a marriage? See, all the nice stuff that's being done is all utterly destroyed because at the heart of it, he is not being with his wife. He may do actions that would be nice if he was doing other things. And this is the way that the Bible sees us and God. We are ignortheists. We do not love God. The words actually seem kind of strange to us. Sin rules us. It destroys our relationship with God. It damages our relationship with ourselves. The selfishness that grows out of it infects our families, destroys our countries. We need to be saved. At least that's what God thinks. So he sends his son, the saviour. Good news, great joy, all people. A saviour has been born. There is hope. There is rescue for the best of us and the worst of us. And the nice thing is that it's said to the shepherds who are amongst the worst of the worst. Now next Sunday we're going to look at the wise men who are amongst the best of the best. Right? They're kind of academics. Useful academics. And, 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 and they are invited. So it's not only these people and, and not those people. It's all people. Because all of us need saving. So it's a day of great joy because all of us can be saved, rescued. Jesus' favourite term often is, the, is to speak of it being a ransom. 
where you save someone by paying a terrible cost. And that's what the bread and the wine is going to remind us of, isn't it? That's, that's, this, is, this is the one thing Jesus sets up to be done day by day by day by day by day again and again and again and again and again is to remind us of the great cost of the ransom so he could save us. This is the work. He is born as a baby in order to be able to do that. Now let me just show you, there's a very famous quote here which I think is worth, worth noting. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, I'm not sure about this one, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer, but our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a saviour. This is really good news. This is the launch of the great, this is like D-Day. The great liberation has begun. The saviour has been born. And he won't say by saying some nice aphorisms, etc. He'll say by dying for us. That's what he does. And it's a time for great joy and great singing. Charles Haddon Spurgeon tells this story, um, apparently a true story. There was a church right on the border between Scotland and England. It was in the middle of winter. The deacons from the local Baptist church knocked on the door of a, of a widow's house. They had with them coal and money and a few other bits and pieces to help this widow through the nastiest part of winter. Nobody responded when they knocked. They knocked and they knocked a few times quite loudly. Anyhow, the next Sunday they saw the widow at church. They said, oh, we're sorry, you know, we, we, had, we, we went to your house. She said, oh, what day was that? They said, it was Thursday about lunchtime. She thought about it and they said, were you out? And they said, no, no, I was in. Why didn't you answer? We said, I thought you might be the messenger from the owners and I was behind in my rent. So I didn't want to answer the door so that I wouldn't have another threatening conversation and perhaps be told I had to move out. Now, I think we're a bit like that at Christmas time. The deacons from the church were coming there to help not to demand that she pays her bill, but help her pay the bill. Jesus does not come with a threatening set of demands that will diminish your life and lose your freedom. He comes to pay your bills. He comes to rescue. He comes to save. And he does it for all of us because all of us need it. Well, let me just finish by reminding you again of the word our and mine. Jesus Christ. Jesus meaning saviour. Christ meaning king, the anointed king. In a sense, that's the centre of the Christian message, isn't it? We've got a king and a wonderful king who can keep us safe, who can guide us well, who makes good laws for us, and a saviour. But the personal pronoun is the difference between heaven and hell, between joy and deadness. To be able to say, not that Jesus Christ is the saviour and the Lord, But to be able to say, my Jesus Christ, he is my saviour. I need saving and I'm trusting him. And he is my king. He is the one who I will follow and seek to do all I can to advance his kingdom. This is a cause of great joy, that God has sent such a king of such wisdom, of such humility, of such insight and such a saviour who can perfectly save 
the academics or the disreputable shepherds, people like me or people like you. Good news, great joy, all people. I hope you can join the many, many here who, who say not just he is the Jesus Christ, but he is my Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to lead in a prayer uh, that expresses that trust in him. Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the great king. You are the trustworthy ruler, coach, guide, master. And we are glad to call you our king, my king. Our great king, we thank you that you came to die for us, to save us, to rescue us, to pay the bill for our sins that we can be wonderfully, perfectly forgiven and enjoy friendship with you now and into eternity. Lord Jesus, we pray that this Christmas we would be people who know the secret of the joy of Christmas, that unto us a saviour has been born. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and kindness, your willingness to pay such a price to set us free. Uh, we thank you for this day that reminds us of all that you are and that you've done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.